Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful worship today. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. We continue our sermon series from the book of 1 Samuel. We pick up our story today in chapter 8, having finished chapter 7 in our last sermon from our Samuel series. Uh, look at the end of chapter 7 for a reminder of, of where, we, where we were. Now, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Verse 15 of 7. Now, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Somehow, from chapter 7 to chapter 8, Samuel suddenly is an old man. He's finished his career, and he's appointed his sons over Israel. Do you remember how Samuel's family became our priestly family in the first place? Turn back to chapter 2. It's not that far of a journey. Chapter 2 and verse 12. Thus, now the sons of Eli were worthless men, and they did not know the Lord. Or 2.17, thus the sin of the young men, that is Eli's sons, was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Or chapter 3 in verse 13, I have told Eli that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. Because Eli had wicked sons, boy Samuel, remember he heard God calling in the night, became the one closest to God, and then Eli has to ask Samuel, what's the Lord saying? Samuel begins the new priestly family because Eli had bad boys. Now, chapter 8 again, our, our new chapter Verse 2, now the name of Samuel's firstborn was Joel, and the second Abijah. They were judging Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Eli's boys were stealing from the offering plate and sleeping with women who worked in the temple area. But oddly enough, Samuel, the one who begins the new priestly family because the old priest, Eli, has bad boys, his sons are doing something just as bad, or really worse, aren't they? Israel was supposed to be the one nation and the one people where justice was blind. It didn't matter if you were rich, it didn't matter if you were poor, it just didn't matter because the justice of God was amongst the covenant community. They were supposed to be the nation that cared for the powerless. Remember that great passage in Micah which summarizes all that God wanted from His people? What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God. That's what God wanted. Do justice Love kindness and be humble. What does God 
really want from us to honor justice. The rich shouldn't have any advantage in the courthouse. That was a foundational commitment of ancient Israel, justice for all without privilege or preference in ancient Israel. But look what happens 8-3. His sons, however, did not walk in Samuel's ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes, and there it is, perverted justice. In the midst of this bribery by the boys of Samuel, the people, verse 5, say, they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king that we can be just like the other nations. You remember the period of Judges, that from the book of Judges and elsewhere. You remember the cycle, ancient Israel would become disobedient and follow its own way. And God would therefore allow them to be defeated by an enemy. They would wake up, they would cry out to God, and God would raise up a judge. The judge would deliver ancient Israel, and all would go well until they on their own again began to drift from God, and they would fall into sin. Another nation would begin to press itself, often the Philistines. And then they would cry out to God. It was a cycle, and God would send a deliverer. That was the cycle. For example, in Judges 3.15, But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. Oppressed, cry out, delivered. Oppressed, cry out, delivered. And Samuel himself was one of the delivering judges of Israel. But as the threat of the Philistines grew larger and larger, Israel had a desire to be like the other nations. There there are a few things I want you to see this morning. And first, I want you to see God's people are to be different. God's people are to be different. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted a centralized king. They didn't want a judge here and a judge there. They wanted centralized authority. Look at 8, 5b. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. In case you missed it, look at verse 20. Our narrator says it again, so that we will be like all the nations. God's people have always been called to be different. We are never to be like the other peoples. The elders of Israel want a governance just like the other nations is alarming to Samuel. It is a core characteristic, is a dispute concerning the nature and the character of being the covenant people of God. This is a big deal. This is their identity, and Samuel does not receive it well. Israel, from its Torah inception at Sinai, was chosen by Yahweh to be a covenant community. Israel was to never be like the other nations. Rather, ancient Israel was to order her life in that odd and demanding ways of the Torah and rely upon the inexplicable and unconditional love of Yahweh. What are they saying? They want to be like just like all the other nations. That's exactly what God called them not to be. They were to be a special people, God's own people, a peculiar people. 
They won't listen to Samuel. They want to be like the other nations in surplus and taxation and the military and the oppression. But the rules and the regulations and the paradigms and the particulars that govern all other peoples are not the same for the people of God. We, like they, are a covenant community based upon the faithfulness of Yahweh, our Father, and the love amongst the community, our brothers. Sometimes somebody will call and ask me. Often it's a a news reporter, maybe a newspaper or television broadcast, and there'll be something controversial, and they'll want to call, and they'll ask the question, is this what we should be doing? Is this right? Do you have a position on this? Well, my first question always is, who is the we we're talking about? What the federal government or the state government or the city government ought to do might be entirely different from what the church ought to do. You see? We are not governed by the particulars of other peoples. Who are the we? How should we respond? How is your walk unique in Christ? How are you different from your neighbor? How is First Baptist Church unlike the other entities, some very good entities? But we are the people of the covenant. There's a second thing I want to say to you. Be careful on getting God to give in. Be careful on getting God to give in. Second, 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 I always come in second. That's a direct quote from New Mexico's Daniel Sherio, who lost a race by nine seconds, a mini-marathon, 13-mile race. It's the fourth time he's finished second in that race. I think I ran a good race, he said. It was close, but he beat me. I finished second all the time. When will I? Will I ever come in first? Yeah. We can't be happy to receive red ribbons or civil, silver medals. It's that almost, but not quite feeling. Almost, but not there. And it doesn't matter whether it's a foot race or a race down the church aisle for a wedding. Well, let's forget about Catherine Hegel and her 27 bridesmaids' dresses. I found one with more. Kim Krissick of Bucktown says she has been a bridesmaid 33 times. She's got a closet full of bridesmaids' dresses because everybody wants you to wear a different one. She is a self-proclaimed professional bridesmaid. If you need one, she knows how to walk. She knows where to stand. She knows how to do it. But a Perpetual bridesmaid is always the woman behind the woman. It's always the one with the smaller bouquet. It is the red ribbon. As the old saying goes, she said, always a bridesmaid and never a bride. How do you like being second? How do you like the color of silver or red? Probably not much because Second best is, by definition, not best. Second best is, by definition, less than best, is it not? God's best for ancient Israel was with God being the king. 
Israel already had a king. What was our anthem? Oh, worship the king. You knew about whom we were speaking. We were speaking not of a president or an earthly king, but a heavenly king. The word for that is theocracy. They want a monarchy. They had a theocracy. Theo, God. God rules. God is king. That was what God wanted. God wanted to be king. Look at 8-7. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God himself had been the ruler. God had been the one on the throne. But they didn't want a blue ribbon leader. They wanted a red ribbon king. Look at verse 8. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day I brought them up from Egypt, even this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. This has been their history with me, God is saying to Samuel. I know them better than you do. For the moment I took them out of Egypt, they've always chosen second best and wanted to do things their way and not my way. And verse 9 must be surely one of the most shocking verses in all the Old Testament. Look what happens here. Now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them the procedure of a king who will reign over them. What? I'm not ready for that. I'm reading the story along and I realize, oh, God's the king and they don't need an earthly king. I expect God to say, you're going to be punished. You will not have an earthly king. That's the logical reading of the text. They asked for a king. God says, no, I'm king, so you don't get a king. But there's this shocking verse where God says, they want a red ribbon? Okay, we'll give them a warning, but we will give them the silver medal. God's reasoning like this. They're demanding a king, Samuel. I don't think they should have one, but Samuel, you give in to their demands, but let's give them warning. God is in this passage, it seems to me, exhausted. Exhausted by ancient Israel. And the moment of exhaustion, God gives in. Have you ever had a child wear you down? I trained my children well, something I don't want them to do, can I do it? No. Real firm first one, no. Second time, Daddy, I just wondered, don't you think it'd be okay because everybody else and no, no. Third time, hmm. Fourth time, okay, I don't like it, but you go ahead. So what I've trained my children to do is ask the first time, it's a no. Second time, it's a less firm no. The third time, I'm waffling, and the fourth time, you get to do what you want to. That's great training for a parent, isn't it? <laughs> Those of you who have babies, let your nay be nay and your yay be yay. <laughs> Once your nay isn't nay, it's game over. There you so it was. God kind of gives in. 
lets them have what they want. C.S. Lewis, I told you a few weeks ago, says all of humanity is divided into two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, okay then, have it your way. That's insightful. Humanity is divided into two kinds of people. Those who, like the Lord's Prayer, like our Christ, like we're supposed to say, thy will be done. And those who hound God and go their own way, to the point he says, okay, have it your way. You can have a king, but if you get a king, you're not going to like it. Some people don't like texts like this. I, I know some of you don't, but it's in the Bible. It's a real text. Don't manipulate the story. There's human freedom written all over this passage. They do not do what God wants them to do. They do not choose what God wants them to choose. God gives them the freedom to choose less than His way, something other than His plan, and they go for the red ribbon and the silver medal. They are out of God's perfect plan. God does not approve of the human king, but he permits it. It's a hard passage, isn't it? God knows better, but God gives them the choice, and God is exhausted by his people, and they are allowed their king but they will hear from Samuel about the bad things about the king. The end of this story shocks us as readers. We expect God to say, no, you'll do it my way. This is the best way. This is the only way. But somehow we get this permitted but disapproved category with God. That's a terrible place to live. A permitted but disapproved category with God. A red ribbon. A silver medal. Yahweh concedes. He doesn't rage. He doesn't resist. He doesn't retaliate. There is in this passage a deep sadness for God. Something so precious and special is being forfeited by Israel, and Israel doesn't even seem to notice what she's done. A passage like this ought to terrify us. We, God has made us such moral free agents that we have the power to choose God's second best in our life rather than His best. He will not make us walk His way. He will allow us to take the second path. Negotiate if you will, but in the end, with God, if you win, you lose. The silver medal, the red ribbon. Here's the third thing I want you to see in this passage. Beware of overpowered, centralized authority because it exists for the purpose of taking. Beware of overpowered, centralized authority, for it exists for the purpose of taking. Beginning in the verses that follow, 
13 and on, 11 and on. We have this diatribe by Samuel against the idea of monarchy. You want a king? Look there beginning in verse 11. He will take your sons and put them in chariots. He will draft your boys to go to war. You want a king? Verse 12. He'll take your daughters to be his bakers and his cooks. You want a king? Verse 14. He's going to take the best of your fields and your vineyards, and he'll confiscate them for his servants. You want a king? He's going to take a tenth of your seed. 16, you want a king? He will take your male servants and your female servants. Verse 17, you want a king? Why, he's liable to tax you 10%. That sounds horrible, doesn't it? He's liable to tax you 10%. You want a king? Verse 16, he'll take your donkeys and use them for his work. You want a king? Verse 17, you will become his, there's the word, slaves. You will become his slaves. Verses 11 through 18 is one of the most critical statements, monologues against a monarchy. Look at verse 11, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. If you get a king, this is what he's going to do. He uses one verb. I'll tell you what uncontrolled, centralized power does. It takes, 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 takes. That's what you get if you get a king. You're probably not going to like what you get when you give someone on earth that much authority. The taking of sons for military purposes, the taking of daughters, the seizure of fields and vineyards, confiscation, centralization, concentration, and you will be slaves. The dread word has now been uttered in the text. What were they before they had God as king? They were slaves to Pharaoh. Now you'll be slaves again. It doesn't matter if it's an Egyptian king or a king from amongst your own people. If you have that centralized authority, you will be slaves. The liberation has ended. I existed. I called you out of slavery into freedom, and now you're choosing to return to slavery. They want to be like other nations, but in doing so, they will be enslaved by centralized authority. Here's a third thing I want you to see. Disobedience led to a deity with deaf ears. Disobedience led to a deity with deaf ears. In the old system of judges, when God's people cried out, God by covenant relationship would respond. And God was alive and vibrant and available. God was there, compassionate and caring. For example, look back one chapter to chapter 7 and verse 8. 
The sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Verse 10, and the Lord thundered with a great thunder and delivered them from the Philistines. Even one chapter earlier, when Samuel is the judge and God is the king, they cry out and God thunders on their behalf. Look at 8.18. Then you will cry out in the day because your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you on that day. Isn't that the chief characteristic of the God of the Old Testament? Do you remember all the way back to the burning bush? What is the conversation between Yahweh and Moses? How many times does he say it in that saga? I have heard the cries of my people. God, by definition, is a God who hears and responds to the cries of his people. And God says, if you get the red ribbon, if you go for the silver medal, I won't be that kind of God anymore. You will cry out, and I will not respond. And it happens. 587 B.C., Israel cried out in need, and Yahweh did not answer Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah 15. And Israel was savagely driven from the pages of history. Why is it that we think we know more than God? Why is it we think that we have a better way than His way? I'm being confessional here. This happened this happened this week. I was sitting with two men who were complete experts in their field, pondering how to solve a problem together, which involved both of their fields. Early on in the conversation, I told them that my experience, exposure, knowledge, and familiarity with their fields would make me completely limited, and therefore, whatever they said to solve our problem would be the right way. I would simply yield to their fields and years of experience and expertise. That sounded like a good little speech for me sitting in my office. But when we walked away from my office to the actual site of the problem, all of a sudden as they discussed their solution in particulars, I thought of a better way. (laughs) Somehow in the space of 30 steps and three minutes, I became an expert. And about two sentences into my correcting the gentleman, the advising experts, I chuckled and said, I've learned something about myself in life. I have a way of giving jobs away to experts and then slowly taking them back to myself. Because, after all, I know what's best, right? When you're doing that with an architect or an artist, it's one thing, and you'll probably come out okay. When you do that with Yahweh, it's a lifelong mistake, and you lose. 
Isaiah 55, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts, your thoughts. God's saying in Isaiah, compared to what I know, you don't have a clue. My ways are the best and only ways. Oh, God, may we cry out for the gold medal and the blue ribbon, and may we never settle for our own second best. Let us pray. Well, God, maybe watching by way of television, maybe in this room there's someone right now asking you for another way other than your way. There's someone wanting to violate your word for his or her own wishes or will. And for him or for her, if they continue down that path, life will be lived second best. Maybe there's even some today either at home or here in this great sanctuary who need to say the first step towards doing things God's way is receiving His Son as my Savior. And I want to do that today. For when I call Jesus Lord, I realize I'm not, and He is, and I need Him to save me. Well, God, all of us are sinners in need of a Savior, and all of us have limited knowledge when you know all. We pray unlike ancient Israel that we will not be the people of the silver medal and the red ribbon. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.